You can turn in your Bible to Genesis 24. If you don't have a Bible, there are, there are Bibles at the back. Um, let's pray as we come to read God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the book of Genesis, the first book of Moses. I thank you for the faith of Abraham. And thank you for the faith of Rebecca. We pray, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. It's Genesis 24. We'll read, I'll read sections and then pause just to look at what we have read. And then at the end, look at what God would have us to learn. It's the longest chapter in Genesis, but this short story has many lessons for us and does drive forward the larger narrative. So we'll start at Genesis 24, verse 1, read a few verses and pause and so on. Genesis 24, verse 1, and it's entitled Isaac and Rebekah. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham has received from Genesis 12 onwards, and we've been seeing this, the blessing and the promises of blessing. God has been true to his promise. But we know the promise is not supposed to stop with Father Abraham, because it is a promise to bless Abraham and his descendants and make them as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. So we are left wondering, as Sarah dies, that's where we left off in Genesis 23, the death burial of Sarah, and Abraham's life is drawing to an end. What will happen to the promise? What will happen to the promise? And in order for the promise to continue, Abraham's son Isaac must have a son. And in order for Isaac to have a son, Abraham needs to find a wife for his son Isaac. Verse 2, Genesis 24 verse 2. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had. Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from, for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. So, pausing again, Abraham is saying to his servant, this is the promised land. And although you need to go back from where we came, to get a wife for my son, so that, is, that there is no compromise. If she isn't willing, 
Do not take Isaac back there. And in order to make this official, he puts his hand under the thigh of Abraham. Be very thankful we only shake hands. But interestingly, if you recall the first time we hear heard Abraham speak, the very first time we heard Abraham speak, he was lying to Pharaoh about his wife. Now this is the last time we hear Abraham speak. The first time we heard Abraham speak, he was lying to Pharaoh about his wife. The last time we hear Abraham speak, he's reassuring his servant that the Lord, the God of heaven, will take care of everything. Wonderful encouragement that Abraham has become the man of faith. We'll pick up the reading at verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and you shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now Abraham's a wealthy man he loads up 10 camels, which is a sign of great wealth. On our honeymoon, uh, someone offered me camels for my wife, which I denied. And, uh, and, uh, and also a few weeks ago, um, when I was in near Northampton for the EFCC committee meeting, it's quite new. I suddenly saw these, you know, one of those, we see it from time to time, police outriders and a caravan of black diesel, mind you, Range Rovers with tinted windows, driving someone really famous, probably to COP26, where they... Anyway, don't, I won't go there. But who was it? Was it William, or was it the Queen? It wasn't Boris, because that was when he was in Spain. <laughs> so it wasn't Boris, but... And it wasn't an electric car fueled by diesel generators, so it wasn't anyone going up to COP26. So what was going on? It was a sign of... Prominence. This is it's a sign of great wealth, and one of the themes throughout this story is how much God is directing the steps. And Abraham has already said that the angel of the Lord is going to do this, and I love the way his servant prays. God, let this be the one. Let me meet her now. FYI, you can't count on meeting a wife this way normally. But here, God is working everything out. He is the one in control. And Abraham's servant is very right to pray. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, just bear in mind what he just prayed. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with a water jar on her shoulder. 
the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she'd finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Here we are introduced to Rebecca, the matriarch of the family, who's going to be the new matriarch of the family. And we often talk about the patriarchs, but the matriarchs are just as important. In verse 15, she's the daughter of Bethel, that makes her the granddaughter of Abraham's brother Nahor. Abraham is her great uncle, and Rebecca makes this very striking first impression. Beautiful, hard-working, hospi hospitable, generous. Isn't no wonder the man is stunned to silence, saying, could this be the one that you have led me to? Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethel, the son of Milcah, whom she brought to Nahor. And she had to be a plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman, woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. The servant of Abraham is coming with gifts, a ring, bracelets. Rebecca doesn't probably realise that these are bridal gifts and that they are meant for her. She gives her name, her lineage, and the servant knows that this is the woman he has been looking for. And now, verse 29, we meet her brother. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and the place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. This is the first time we're introduced to Laban, who is an important character throughout the rest of Genesis, Rebecca's older brother. Her father is alive, but it appears he may be too old or infirm to engage. He gets a say in the matter, but Laban is the one. And it's not uncommon in the ancient Near East for the older brother to play that patriarchal role in the family, Joseph and his brothers, when the father, especially when the father is old. And we get some hints as to the kind of man Laban will become, whereas Rebecca is so quick and generous to welcome the strangers 
Laban is quick to meet them when he finds that they've given gold to Rebekah. And in verse 34, we have that retelling of the story. Why do we need to hear the story almost word for word? But think of how often in the book of Genesis we have the doubling of stories with the dreams that are given in two different ways later in the book. The doubling is to reinforce the message. It is a way to set apart the story. They didn't have italics then, they didn't have bold, they didn't have underline, but this is a way to highlight the story to double up. And as he retells the story, he adds a few choice bits. He makes sure that Laban understands that Abraham is wealthy, Isaac is the sole heir, and Ishmael has left the room. And Isaac was born in Sarah's old age because they might be thinking, how old is this man that you want my younger sister to marry? He's not married, that is good. It's not a second wife, not a concubine. He wants a wife from his own people. He's going back to find his own people to be reassured that he would have an heir through his own family line. And then the servant reinforces, this is the Lord's doing. It'll be a success, and he waits for a response. We jump to verse 50. Then Laban and Bethel answered and said, The thing that has come from the Lord, we cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewellery of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. On the one hand, they agree, she can go with you, we give her our blessing, our consent. But Laban is having second thoughts. And if Laban is anything like Laban who will later interact with Jacob, it is possible Laban is angling for a bit more gold, some more gifts. The phrase, let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least 10 days, could be translated, let the girl remain with us days or 10. And some Jewish traditions would say an indefinite period of time. It's basically saying, stay with us a day or a hundred. It leaves the door open to be stuck in the land of Nahor for this long time. Then you have this time when we've been waiting for things. It's that indefinite period of time. And perhaps in Laban's thinking, an opportunity to get more of the gifts before we send you on our way. Verse 56. But he said to them, the Lord's servant, Abraham's servant, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go back to my master. Verse 57, they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And Rebekah is in some way under the authority of Laban, under her father. But even in here, she's given the final decision. Verse 59, they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become 
thousand of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman, women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. They sent her with their blessing. They sent her with her nurse. The woman's name is Deborah. We later find out. And Deborah would have raised Rebekah. So it's an act of kindness that she doesn't go on this journey to a new place and a new man. Deborah goes with her. Several other young women can go with her as well. She's given more gifts. And now we're transitioning from Mesopotamia back to the Promised Land. Verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahalaroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. Lest you think there's no romance in the Bible, listen up if you like romance. Verse 63 and 64 are loaded with romance. They're worded in such a way to suggest their eyes met at the same time. He's meditating in the fields. I'm getting all gooey. I'm just thinking about it. And he looks up and he sees, <laughs> he sees the camels. And she looks up and their eyes meet. And surely Isaac knew that Abraham had sent his servant. And maybe someone was coming soon. And she's on the outskirts of where the servant says Isaac will be. And as they each look up, their gaze, they meet eyes for the first time, soon to be husbands and wife. Yeah, I'm not a very good script script writer, I know. (laughs) Verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. By entering the tent of Isaac's mother, Sarah, Moses is telling us that Rebekah is now the matriarch of the people of God. She entered into the place, literally, where Sarah was. The baton has been passed from Abraham to Isaac. The baton has been passed from Sarah to Rebekah. And Genesis 25 will be the death of Isaac and his descendants, It's a wonderful story. There are these wonderful themes. We've been looking at them. Promise, providence and blessing in Genesis. And they're each so evident in this story. We see the promise to make Abraham a great nation is going to continue through Isaac and through his virgin bride. We see God working behind the scenes providentially to arrange a marriage, a marriage made in heaven. And we see that the next generation is going to receive the blessing, just as Abraham received the blessing. So we can easily and rightly focus on these themes, promise, providence and blessing. But there will be further opportunity to do so, but there is a wonderful, important, vitally important for our culture sub-theme, and that's about godly women and about godly marriage.
And that's what I want to look at for a few moments this morning. The way that Genesis 24 highlights Rebecca. I think it is good and right to draw out this theme of what God is saying to us in his word. This is what a woman of faith, this is what a godly woman looks like. First of all, Rebecca was of the family of God. Now in the Old Testament, this was a spiritual and also ethnic thing. That's really clear. So go away from the Canaanites, both because that may lead to religious compromise, but also we want to marry within our own clan. Now, in the New Testament, that is transposed to a solely spiritual key. The language of the New Testament is, do not be unequally yoked. It is no longer tied to ethnicity or your family clan, but it does need to be someone from your spiritual family. In Vienna, when we were in Vienna, I remember a woman sobbing, giving her testimony in church, sobbing because as a believer, she had married a Muslim and thought she could handle it. The, the Bible is really very clear. The lesson, made, the lesson is very clear in the New Testament. Think about Abraham passing on to Isaac. Isaac needing a wife who will share with him a life based on the promises of God. And to be married to someone where one person's life is based on the promises of God and someone else's life is based on other things is a huge and tragic mistake. Now God is gracious and God brings around conversions but this is God's plan. This is God's idea. This is God's intent. If you are a believer, your life is about three things. The promises of God, the providence of God, and the blessings of God. And if that is what your life is about, if that's what it is, God, 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 how could you yoke yourself to someone whose life is not about those things? Not building their life on the promises of God, but the promises of the world. Or a good retirement. Not trusting in the providence of God, but trusting in themselves, not depending on the blessings of God. I, I, I thought this week about people walking past this church while we're in here. And my heart was broken. How many of them are just hurtling towards a lost eternity? And I prayed, Lord, make just one of them. Make just one be converted. Rebecca is from the family of God. She's the right sort of person. No wonder Abraham says so emphatically, this is what you are to look for. That's number one. She was from the family of God. Number two, she was beautiful. Now you said, James, hang on, that's not at all spiritual. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. If you pay attention to Genesis, every one of the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, are noted for their beauty. But there's no pictures. We know that anyway. There's no measurements. There's no height, weight. Nothing about the colour of the eyes or the colour of the hair, what the cheekbone looks like, about the cut of the dress. God tells us that they're beautiful women and here is what it looks like. There are many different ways 
for a woman to be beautiful. And that's part of the way that God has wired us. The New Testament uses the Old Testament and transposes us how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So it is, it is the totality of Rebecca's character that makes her lovely. In addition to being a beautiful woman inside and out. So it's the totality of her character. The Bible uses that word beauty so differently to the way that our world does. I have never, and I promise you, I've never looked at it, and I hope no one ever does, but there is a, a programme on TV called Love Island. That is not what the Bible is, says is beautiful. That is just a celebration of sin. But what the Bible says is beautiful is godly character. That's why I read Proverbs 31 at the outset. Thirdly, she was a maiden whom no man had known. This is vitally important for men and women, not only to establish her integrity, but to ensure that any future offspring from Rebecca would surely be from Isaac. It's important for her integrity, integrity of the promised line, and I say carefully, this is for both men and women. God's design is that the gift of sex is designed to be reserved for marriage. Maybe some would say, well, that is not just true of the world. That's not the way the world is anymore. I know it's not. It's clearly not. But that doesn't make it any more vital. God wants us to be pure, brothers and sisters. He wants us to be pure. And that the gift of sex is designed for marriage. Maybe some would say, well, that's not just true of me anymore. Am I no longer the kind of Rebecca woman? Or am I no longer the kind of man that God would be pleased with? Well, remember this. The line of the Messiah includes who? Rahab, Bathsheba. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So do not hear this as a requirement and if you blew it, you get second best for the rest of your life. Absolutely not. But we must not be embarrassed by what the Bible says. There is a bill going through Parliament about conversion therapy, which we should pray so earnestly around that we are not restricted in what we pray for. We are not restricted in what, in, in what we pray for. We shouldn't be embarrassed about what the Bible says is good. And what the Bible says is honourable. That men and women would be virgins on marriage. Today, I have to tell you, it's a shameful thing in the world if you are a virgin. Than it is to find out if you're sexually active. Hasn't the world lost the plot, brothers and sisters? That what is good is evil and what is evil is good? Where it's more embarrassing to be a virgin than it is to be sexually active? Now, if you are amongst Bible-believing Christians, hopefully that is not the case. But in most places in our world, in most schools, in most universities, it is a shameful thing to be a Christian. And to hold to Christian values. But we must honour what the Bible honours, that the gift is so great and precious that God meant, he meant, he meant, he meant to reserve it for marriage. 
So it is a sign of integrity that Rebecca was a maiden who had not known a man, and it is stated categorically here. For Rebecca was hospitable and generous. Verse 17. I find this quite amusing as well. He says, Can I have a little water? He sounds so British, doesn't he? I hope it wasn't a Brit, a Brit who translated that, but he sounds so British. And in verse 18, she gives him the whole jar. And then in verses 19 and 20, it's easy to miss what's happening here. It's astounding. She gets water for 10 camels. And then says in verse 19, I will draw water for your camels until they're finished drinking. <coughs> now, I've only ridden on camels twice, I think. But they drink a lot of water. They do drink a lot of water. So it's, it's a big jar that she takes down. It's not a litre bottle, it's a big jar. She gives some to the men. This is a feat of almost superhuman strength and generosity. More camels, more camels, drawing up water to show lavish hospitality. And verse 25, she says, we have plenty of room in my household, lodging and food for the camels and for the men. She's an example of generosity and hospitality. This doesn't mean that I'm not a good Christian if I don't have people over to my house once a week or once a month. We've been locked down for 18 months. But it does not say Rebecca invited strangers to her tent every fortnight. But what we know is that she is hardworking, eager to serve, especially to show care and generosity toward her guests, to look out for the interest of others. She's hospitable and generous. And five... She was modest. Verse 64, Rebecca lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. She took her veil and covered herself. Modesty for women is not about men being such ravenous wolves that women are responsible for their behaviour. And sometimes we shy away from this or we get it wrong and the message gets communicated and implied wrongly or wrongly heard that modesty is really about your brothers are going to stumble so it's up to you women to make sure that your brothers don't stumble. That's, wrong. That's, that, that's not right. We do think about one another and want to consider one another and bear one another's burden so it is part of being thoughtful but that is not the reason for modesty and we never want to communicate that a woman is responsible for the man's sin. The man's sin is his. Square and simple. The man's sin is his. He is responsible for the sin of lust. He is responsible for immorality. His sin. But why does the Bible talk, not just here, but in other places, about modesty? The passages in the pastoral epistles address the women about how they are to adorn themselves with certain kinds of apparel. Immodesty, which means wearing very little, immodesty communicates two things. Firstly, my body is the most important thing I have to offer. Is that what is want to be communicated? Isn't it your heart, your character? Isn't it your love for other people? That's one thing that immodesty communicates. And the second thing immodesty can communicate is, I do not have more to show my husband or wife. Because men can be immodest as well. But we're thinking here of Rebecca. 
That is what immodesty communicates, whereas modesty says, I have something to hide. Not because it is shameful or bad, quite the opposite. Because the body that God gave is beautiful and pleasing, and I am not going to reveal it to everyone. The world says, you ministers and modesty, you're just body shamers. You're women shamers. It's the polar opposite, I can promise you. Because the gift of the body is so precious and so glorious and so meant to be good. It isn't to be shared with everyone. Here is Rebecca. This is the man I'm going to marry. This is our first impression. How can I impress him? Well, the skirt is a bit long. I have to impress Isaac. Put on less. Now, here he is. I'd better cover myself. Now, I know there are cultural dynamics here. Women don't wear veils. I'm not encouraging burqa wearing in the church. But think of it. Why do brides wear veils? Why do brides wear veils? Do you know what the symbolic gesture is? You veil so you can unveil. That is the point. The veil is, for my husband, I have something I will unveil for, and it's special. It is an unveiling, it is a revealing for each other. And this is why I said at the beginning, you may think, well, this doesn't apply to me, but it can apply to your children or grandchildren and inform how you speak to this. For young people in particular, men and women of any age, it has never been easier with the phones and iPads to, be, to see nakedness or to get naked for other people. And I want to say very, very clearly, men never, ever ask for that. And women never, ever give it. I'm talking about preservation. No matter what kind of pressure there is, it isn't because of what everyone does or everyone has to do. Men never dare ask for it and women never, ever give it. Because God calls us in his word to veil so that there may be an unveil. Six, and I think it's my final point, but I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I didn't get that far in revision this morning. I ran out of time. But Rebecca was full of faith. And she's deliberately cast as the female counterpart to Abraham. If you think about all the connections, God comes to Abraham in chapter 12. Go, you don't know where you're going. Go to the promised land. Leave your family. Trust me and go. And the same with Rebecca. She left and went. She left the same place to go to the same place she didn't know. She had to trust. And she said beautifully, poignantly, and it was very moving just reading it, I will go. I will go. And just like Abraham, she received great wealth upon the journey. Just like Abraham, she received a blessing. Did you hear that? May you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Her leaving is an act of great faith, brothers and sisters. She is the female counterpart to Abraham. There are godly women in the Bible as examples. We can learn, learn things, both men and women, from the examples of men and women. But there is something powerful to see here. That this is what a godly woman looks like. And men, if you are married, you see these things in your wife. And it would be good for you to go from this meeting 
and commend your wife for it. Men looking for a wife, sometimes looking for a wife, they have a list of things. Sometimes your list is way too short. She's got to be gorgeous. Sometimes your list is way too long. You have 30 things. But this is a great starting point. And she's a woman of faith. Because of the things that make women beautiful, faith is what makes them the loveliest. A faith-filled woman is beautiful. Like Rebecca. Four years ago, I read it and I quoted it at the time, there was a piece on the Gospel Coalition by Joni Erickson Tarnum. And it reflected on 50 years 2017, 50 years from that day, she had a diving accident that left her paralysed. And I want to read the end to speak and highlight a woman of faith. Last week, this is Joni Erickson Tarder, last week my husband Ken and I were at our Joni and Friends family retreat in Alabama. We were lunching in the big noisy dining room when a college-age volunteer approached me holding a kid with Down syndrome on her hip. She gestured at the crowd and said, Miss Joni, do you ever think how none of this would have happened were it not for your diving accident? I flashed a smile and said, that's why I thank God every day for my wheelchair. After she left, I stared for a moment at the dining hall scene. I suddenly had a 35,000 foot of view of the moment. She's right. How did I get here? It has everything to do with God and his grace. Not just grace over the long haul, but grace in the tiny moments, like breathing in and out. Like stepping stones leading you from one experience to the next. The beauty of such grace is that it eclipses the suffering until one July morning you look back and see five decades of God working in a mighty way. Grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. And what you're left with is peace that is profound, joy that is unshakable, and faith that is ironclad. She's a woman of faith. She's in a wheelchair. She can't move. The life of faith is lovely to Christ, and it is lovely to everyone who has the eyes to see him. May the Lord encourage us this morning. May he get the glory. And may it be for our good. Amen.